Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians. So we continue in our series, Rhythms and Roots. The purpose of our studying this is, uh, the, the subject is simply that we may encourage one another uh, to, for spiritual formation. There's a number of different approaches in terms of preaching. Um, one that seems to be the most popular is that which is practical, what well, may be second most popular to that which promises you everything and bases nothing in Scripture, but that's a whole other issue. The primary thing, though, that we are concerned about is not to avoid practicality and not simply to teach doctrine, but that we would take God's Word, God's promises, consider them, and allow that to shape not only our minds but our lives, and that's what we call spiritual formation. And so the whole series of rhythms and roots is intended for the purpose of shaping our lives, shaping our perspective, shaping our practices, which ultimately is the most practical thing that can possibly do because it begins to work itself out in every aspect of our lives. And we continue this morning uh, as we, in, in our uh, study, as we consider the rhythms of this life, uh, found this morning our text in, in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, talking about the rhythm of giving. Our primary uh, verse will be verse 7. It essentially might be our, considered our theme verse, but for the sake of context and also for some of what we'll be looking at this morning, uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 6 and continue reading through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. May the Lord bless us with understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we do come this morning to offer praises to you and thanksgivings to you as we have recognized that all that we have has come from you, whether it is the direct provision from your hand in ways that we cannot explain, or whether it is the fruit of our labors that we are able to exercise gifts that have come from you. Father, all things belong to you. All blessings flow from you. And Lord, all wisdom also comes from you. And so I pray that now as we spend this time lending our ears to listen to your voice or for your voice through this word, that you would speak to us, you would shape us, encourage us, and renew us by the truth of your word, that you might set us free from things that shackle us in order to enjoy the freedom for which you have set us free, through Christ. And Father, it's in Christ that we come, and it's for Christ that we long, and it's Christ that we need to be seen. 
for he is the word incarnated, the very fullness of your being. It's in him that we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis once noted that he who has God plus everything has no more than he who has God alone. It's really astounding kind of a statement because, at least mathematically, it seems like it would be an oxymoron, but I think it's more of a paradox. My point isn't really to prove that, but just to say, let's consider that for a moment. Because whether you believe that phrase or you disbelieve that phrase makes a significant amount of difference in the way that we live our lives. Whether we can recognize the paradox that having God plus everything gives us no more than God and God alone. That the person who is wealthy by the world's standards and yet a believer in God has no more than the person who doesn't seem to have a whole lot, but yet still has the peace and all of the promises of God. That understanding, or the way that we relate to at least Lewis's observation, shapes a number of things. And it's particularly important this morning as we consider the topic of the, the rhythm of giving. And the reason that it's significant is because whether somebody has been a believer for a long time or whether somebody is a new believer trying to explore all of this whole Christian lifestyle, it's been noted somewhat cynically that the last part of a person converted is often the wallet. In other words, we'll give ourselves to the Lord's day. We'll give ourselves to rest. We'll give ourselves to prayer. We'll give ourselves to study. But the whole idea of our stewardship, our giving for the Lord, that's often one of the last things that is converted or becomes committed to the Lord. And I understand that for a number of reasons. There's a lot of misconceptions about uh, money, and particularly money as it relates to the church. Perhaps the widest spread or greatest uh, uh, understanding is that the church is only interested in your money, that our purpose is to gather as many people as possible so that we can collect as much as possible so that we can have as much as possible. Another misconception, I think, is that the purpose of the stewards talking about money in the church is simply so that we can meet a church budget. And so consequently, sometimes in churches, the only time money is talked about is for the annual stewardship message. That's not what we're going to do today. That's not my focus. I think another misconception that is related to the whole idea of not talking about money is that money is a private matter. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a house where if I had had the audacity to ask my father how much he made, I would have been told very bluntly, none of your business. And in my house, it would have probably been a four-letter word in between the none of your and business. Because it's considered to be a private matter. No doubt it is a personal matter because each of us is affected by the income, the works, the spending, the debts that we have. And so finances are very personal, but whether it's a private matter or not, it's an interesting thing. There are other private matters, other personal matters in the church that we recognize come under the purview of talking about the church. I mean, marriage is a pretty personal and both private uh, matter, but we don't seem to shun away talking about the issues related to marriage, the raising of children. Any number of subjects are very personal, but somehow this one particular issue is one that we are we prefer that we just don't deal with, at least not too much in the church. And I tend to suspect it's because that money is really the American God. 
and therefore it becomes taboo to begin messing with that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, if you think about the founding of our own country, while there clearly was a spiritual dimension to it, down the road, a bunch of believers came, set, established, but the purpose for coming was so that they could make more money. Not wrong. But the reality is it was driven from the very beginning as believers who were in pursuit of more money. And I think that continually our culture has been driven by money. And for whatever the reasons, consequence of that is that there tends to be, in many churches, too little discussion about money. And I believe that's a shame. One of the reasons I believe it's a shame is because we need to recognize that the talk about money in the church is not primarily about a church budget. Discussion of money, the discussion of stewardship, the rhythm of giving is primarily about spiritual formation. And the giving that we do or don't do is probably the greatest indicator of our true faith and our spiritual vitality. It certainly is a, a very tangible one. It's one that we can recognize if we learn to look at the signals. Now, in this text, Paul is actually picking up on a theme that he was dealing with in the previous chapter. He's talking about really generosity, the idea of, of generous giving. He's encouraging people who have been faithful in a number of ways, reminding them of the benefits of their faithfulness, not only to others but to themselves, and he's encouraging them to continue in their generosity. He's encouraging them to become wise and conscientious and intentional about their stewardship. And he suggests to us that it is an evidence of their true faith. It's an evidence of the true faith because it's a constant reminder as they are encouraged to each decide to think about what they will give. They're faced with a reality to ask, what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in God who is the provider of all things? And that's one of the things that Paul goes back to in this text. Look, he who has provided seed, he'll continue to provide seed. He's telling you the principles of he who sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. He who sows um, generously, uh, graciously, abundantly, they will also reap abundantly. He's, he's bringing this out and saying, where is, is my trust? Is the trust in God or is the trust in what I have stored up? Or is the trust in myself and my own ability to generate and to make sure that I provide for myself? When Paul is dealing with this question, anybody who's going to seriously take his instruction to decide in their own hearts what it is that they're going to give, they come face to face with what it is that they truly are trusting in. What are they truly believing? And God throughout the scripture has constantly asked his people to trust in him and to demonstrate their trust in him through their giving and through their giving both to him directly and also giving to the advancement of his kingdom. It's also an evidence of spiritual vitality. Because what I want to look at this morning is that what Paul is saying to us in this text is that giving is a gauge of our heart. It's also a measure of our compassion for other people. And those are primarily the two things that I want to look at this morning. And so first what we want to consider is this, is what Paul is telling us is that giving is a gauge of your heart. Now, Paul says, look, each man should give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So as we think about that passage, we think about what Paul is saying there, it's not difficult to see how he's connecting our giving to the heart. I mean, it's, it's right there for us to see. 
Each must decide in his own heart. In other words, it's not just a matter of going through mechanics. It's not a matter of doing because you're required to do so. It's a connection somehow is an indicator of your heart. What is given, if you decide in your heart what you're going to give, then what is given is an expression of your heart. But even as clear as it is that, uh, that Paul is saying that the giving is an expression of the heart, it also raises some very practical questions, things that shouldn't be ignored, such as, what about the tithe? Paul's not specifically speaking about the tithe here. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But at the same time, as what if I decide in my heart I want to give less? I mean, those are reasonable questions based on what Paul is saying here, isn't it? You each decide in your own heart what it is that you want to give. God doesn't want uh, just to, the sacrifice of giving and for the sake of being able to say, look how much I sacrifice. He wants somebody who's delirious, who's, who's, who finds it hilarious, delightful to be able to give. So I want to stop for a moment and talk about those questions because those are the practical questions that many people ask and where we tend to get hung up on. And they are related to what Paul is saying here. Now, I think most of the people who have been Christians for any length of time would recognize, and there doesn't seem to be much debate, that the tithe, literally the giving of one-tenth of, of the income, is the Old Testament standard for giving. And that under the law, the tithe, which literally means one-tenth, was an indication of, well, whether you are faithful or not. And throughout the Old Testament, God seems to take this whole tithe thing fairly seriously. One indication we find in the book of Malachi. Malachi 3, here's what the Lord speaking to his people. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines and your fields and will cast and not cast uh, their fruit, uh, says the Lord Almighty. And then the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord seems to take this pretty seriously, both in saying, look, the idea of giving the tithe is an indication of whether or not you are robbing God or whether you are piling up for yourself. And he says, in a positive way, test me in this. See if my promises don't hold true. If you rob me, you find you have less. If you give, you find that you will have more in abundance than what you can possibly stockpile for yourself. But while that's a familiar passage, many in the church still might respond, well, I can't be happy giving that much. Can't be happy giving any more than what I'm given. Besides, I'm under grace and I'm not under the law, and that seems to be kind of law. That whole tithe thing, the whole 
So I think we need to consider a couple of things. Regarding the whole issue of it being under the law, we need to, one, recognize this, that the tithe actually precedes the law. The whole concept of tithe we find first when Abraham meets Melchizedek, who most scholars believe is a the pre-incarnate Christ come, because he, other than Jesus, is the only one who bears the office of prophet, priest, and king. He not only receives the worship, but he receives the tithe that Abraham was bringing to him. So the whole concept of tithe predates the law, and it was incorporated in the understanding of the law, and the Lord takes it serious as obvious as he's speaking through the prophet Malachi. We also need to remember that Jesus himself said that I didn't come to do away with the law. In fact, not one iota, not one dot ought to be removed from the law. God, even as he's speaking to Malachi, says, I don't change. And we're told throughout the New Testament, the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so for us to kind of get uptight about the whole idea of this tithe, as if somehow this is archaic, an old standard of giving, To me, it doesn't make sense. Now, I also have to concede at the same time that the New Testament standard of giving is not the tithe. While the Old Testament, while the law prescribed a 10%, if you give 10%, you're faithful. If you don't give 10%, um, you're not faithful. It seems pretty clear-cut in that. The New Testament standard is radically different than that. In one sense, it's very freeing. But somehow we tend to miss it. Because the New Testament attitude towards giving is not bring your 10%, write the check, then go on your merry way, everything will be well. The New Testament says, look, you need to examine your heart and your giving. And rather than just figuring out that percentage and then following that percentage week after week, year after year, the New Testament says, look at your heart and ask yourself this question. What is my salvation worth? See, we're encouraged through the New Testament to not just go through the ritual of the practice of giving the tithe, but we are to give in accordance with the grace that has been given to us. And what that simply means is, how have I been graced? In what way have I been blessed? And what is that worth? And in one-on-one discussions, I've had that before I find people start thinking, hey, that tithe doesn't sound that bad anymore. Because the reality is everything belongs to God. And those who have been redeemed and understand where they have been redeemed from recognize that. It's important that we stop and we consider what's been done for us. Now again, in the context of this particular passage, Paul's is urging people to be generous givers. He doesn't even mention the tithe here, although I, I suspect, and most commentators that I have looked at also suspect, that the tithe was largely understood. And it is a reasonable thing to be asking yourself because if Paul is here saying, look, decide in your heart what it is it you want to give. It's a reasonable question for me to say, all right, how much is it that I want to give? How much am I comfortable giving? How much will bring me delight and joy in giving? But then don't stop with those questions because other questions we probably ought to ask are things like this. Why is it that I don't want to give more? Why don't I trust God to be able to provide my needs if I am to give and to give more? 
See, these are all questions of the heart, and even the tithe simply becomes a standard, a measure, a gauge by which we are able to see whether or not we trust in God and whether we are delighting in God. Now, I understand the complexity of our culture and that there are people who have put themselves in, in significant debt and there's just no way you can't squeeze any more out. But that still becomes our, our standard against which we need to measure and then ask ourselves, does it bring me joy and delight? If not, why not? And I can't answer that question for you. I can't even always ask it, answer it for myself. Because what brings delight one month might not bring so much delight the next month. And the reasons could vary. And the reasons will vary for you. But we can't just realize that it doesn't bring me delight to do what God has called me to do. And then just stop there and not ask the questions why. God has established the giving as an opportunity for us to be able to look at our own hearts and to wonder and to grow, and to learn to trust even as we repent. Because as we recognize that giving the tithe doesn't bring me any delight, or when I do it, I feel so much better than most of you. I don't know what you give, actually, but if you're statistically true, the average evangelical gives 2.5%, and only about 3% of evangelicals actually practice in tithing. So when I'm able to tithe, sometimes it's just a reason, an excuse for me to be able to puff myself up and to feel better about myself. That's really something else that needs to be repented of. But that standard, standard of the tithe, which is easy for us to measure, and then asking ourselves, what is it that brings us joy? These begin to address the questions of our heart. And God is very aware that we have needs to address our heart. Jesus is in the Sermon of the Mount, and as he's speaking to the people, he says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body or what you wear. Is life not more important than food? And, and, and he goes on and he helps people understand that the anxieties that we have in this life are tied to our trust and whether or not God will provide for us. And Paul, as he's dressing the Romans in one of the most profound scriptural uh, chapters in Romans 8, wraps up his theological argument with this question. What then shall we say in response to all of this in terms of the promises of God that he who has you? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And see, Paul, as he's writing that, is addressing people who are like you and me who wrestle in the issue of the heart and wrestle day in and day out because there are always needs, there are always pressures. And the question that we are driven to ask ourselves, and Paul is asking the Romans is, so where is it that you're putting your trust in order to resource and provide? If it's in yourself, then there may be a limitation. If it's in our economy, there's obviously limitations. If it's in God, then there are no limitations, but the question that we then have to ask ourselves is not whether God is able but whether God has promised. And what Paul is referring us to is to the gospel. He's reminding us of the gospel and saying, look, if he has not spared his own son, if he's given us everything, then what is it that you think he's going to withhold from you that you need? And Paul is addressing a very important issue that sometimes we don't attach to the whole subject of giving because we seem to allow the whole idea of giving 
to be attached only to the law in the way that we relate to the law. And Paul, at that point, and even at this point in the text where he's saying, decide in your heart, he's attaching the whole thing to the gospel. Paul's reminding the Romans, look, I know that you wrestle with trust as opposed to the cultural pressures that you have. But God, who has given you everything... See, Paul is reminding us of the gospel in that passage. And the reason he's reminding us is because we are so prone to forget and we also are neglectful of applying that to some of these other practical questions of our lives. And so Paul reminds them of the gospel. And we, when we consider the gospel, just need to understand that the gospel promise and all that God has given to us reminds us that God loves you far more than you can possibly even imagine. And the various verses throughout the scriptures that continually point us back to the love of God and the way that he provides for us they propel us to then respond to God in love. And when we begin to look at the whole idea of giving through the lens of the gospel as opposed to the lens of the law, it makes a radical difference in the way we begin to think. Scotty Smith, some of you know the name, uh, uh, who was a pastor outside of Nashville for a number of years, he makes this point. He says, when we understand the gospel, stewardship ceases to be an annual lecture about tithing it becomes an exchange of vows in which Jesus says to us, and we say to him, with everything that I have and everything that I am, I honor you. And stewardship ceases to be pressure to give more to missions and more to mercy ministries and becomes the response of a cherished bride to her bridegroom and her bridegroom's passions and concerns. We begin to become generous with him and not merely for him. When we recognize that stewardship and giving is a rhythm of the heart connected to the gospel, it changes everything and it becomes a gauge of our heart. And so when we're asked the question, how much is it you want to give? We are able to begin reading our own hearts. Giving is also a measure of our compassion, our concern for others. There are tremendous needs in this world, there's no question. Whether they're tangible and physical needs, people in developing nations who are in need of something as basic and simple as clean water, education, safety, places to live. Or their spiritual needs, which, while they tend to be subordinated to the tangible needs, are so prevalent in a world that is without hope. The thing that is amazing to me is I've read with some economists and Christian economists saying that the resources are available to meet these needs. in America alone. Some of the economists would say that if Americans would tithe and everybody who proclaims to be a Christian would tithe, the amount that would be generated would be sufficient not only for reaching all of the unreached people groups to meet the spiritual needs, but also to be able to alleviate much of the poverty or if not all of the poverty and starvation. 
And I'm not suggesting that we're practically going to be able to do that. I take Jesus seriously when he says, look, the poor you're always going to have with you. And there's any number of reasons, and it's not just the resources that keep some people poor. Some people can give them resources, and they have no idea how to deal with it. And so, therefore, it's only a matter of time before they become poor again. Anybody, almost anybody you read about that has won the lottery, you know, at a trailer park in West Virginia or somewhere in East Tennessee, they hit the lottery, within about a month, they're filing for bankruptcy, and they've lost even the trailer that they lived in before they won the lottery because they just don't know how to deal with it. But it is astounding reality to know that the resources are available. And I've seen one economist even just talk about, just if you think about it for a moment, the amount of money that is spent on Christian garbage, that's kind of the stuff you see in the Christian bookstore. I mean, how many sets of praying hands does anybody possibly need? Or any of those other things that you would find there that generate a billion dollars a year industry spent on Christian garbage. The resources are available. To be able to meet needs, even the things that we already are distributing. It's important to recognize that our giving goes to help to alleviate some of those needs. Part of the reason that in our budget, a significant part, goes to missions and the mercy ministry and to campus ministry, to things that needs outside of the doors of the church. And it's a percentage we love to see increase as we have the opportunity. Now, there are seasons where you have ability to do more and seasons where you have ability to do less, but the whole idea is that we don't exist for ourselves. And one of the things that Paul is saying here in this, particularly in verse 12 and 13, he reminds us that when we are giving, we are not only meeting those needs, we're actually connecting. The whole idea of compassion is not just a matter of, uh, of caring, but it's a matter of connecting, compassion. It's the, the calm part means that we're doing this together. We're, compassion means feeling what others are feeling. And Paul is saying in verse 12 that there is a connection that we are having with the people. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, by their approval, they're being the ones who are the recipients of the giving, their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. So what Paul is saying there is, as we are willing to give and we find the delight in giving and we give for the work of the Lord, that we are beginning to connect with others. Not only are they the beneficiaries of our giving, but then the recipients begin to give thanks to God, not just for the resources. Paul's saying they begin to give thanks to God for you. There is a connection that is taking place. And at times it can be overwhelming, even amazing, because not only are they giving thanks to God for you, they may even begin to bless you through ways of ministering to you. When I was serving a church in Chattanooga, we began to partner with a, a ministry that was working with indigenous churches. And we were asked if our church would begin to sponsor a church in Nagpur, India. There was a man who had been there who grew up in one of the higher uh, castes in India, had gone on to university, became highly educated, was a very prominent engineer. And then when the Lord got a hold of his heart, he began to have a compassion for the poor. 
turned his education into studying of the scriptures, became a pastor, and then left his own caste system, dropped down several notches to the second to the lowest caste system in India, and began to do a ministry in Nagpur, which was, at the time, I just thought a little small town. Uh, it was roughly the uh, size of um, Chicago, uh, but a little larger than I, I had I thought about. And this church, as they were sending us reports, they had virtually nothing because it was the lowest, one of the lowest caste systems in India. And so, of course, we were asked to partner, and I assumed that we were to not only be praying, but that we were to be giving. And so our church and our missions committee sent a check to the agency we were working with for their benefit, only to have the check returned to us and for the people in Nagpur to simply say, we, we thank you for the gesture. We just want to know how we can pray for you. We want to know that there are churches that are praying for us. We want to pray. We want to be in partnership. And while over time we were able to supply certain needs for them, because this was a church because they had nothing, would find an alleyway in that town, and each week they would set up a kind of a canvas, sort of a tent. They would string a canvas, um, well, a canvas on one end of the building and then on the other end of the building, and they would meet between the canvases for worship each week. But I mean, think about that for just a moment. These people who have nothing, who we were asked to partner with, and our assumption was, yeah, we have everything, so we will supply. But they simply wanted to love us and pray for us. There is a connection through the giving and through the partnership that we are called to be involved with, and we are blessed. It's important that we understand that these are the primary aspects of giving. Like, and I recognize, before I move on to my final point, that for some this could easily fall on deaf ears and become self-serving. For those who are part of the church, it's no secret that we are running in a deficit. And if I could say, look, just don't give at all in order to just listen to the importance of this message, I would. I don't have that authority. The goal is not to generate the bucks, to have you cough things up. My desire is that we would take seriously what God says and allow that to form us, not some magic that, okay, I move from 2% to 10%, or that everybody does that. It's a process for many of us. We need to see whether, we, whether what I'm saying is truly what God is saying. We need to deal with our own hearts and commitments. We need to deal with our own financial situations. It is a process, but it is a process that God, who says, I have not changed, does invite us to test him in. And it's vitally important that we hear that. Because not only is it a gauge of our heart and an opportunity for us to measure our compassion, we need to recognize that the rhythm of giving is also a means of personal renewal, spiritual renewal. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Move down to verse 10. And he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is an invitation for us to participate in the giving. And through that, there is a promise of renewal that takes place, of blessing, of righteousness here. Now, I do recognize that these are very widely abused passages, particularly in our culture. There is a stream pretending to be Christianity that calls itself prosperity 
focuses on the prosperity, most of which is tangible. And from that, there is a doctrinal tenet that they have coined, they have concocted, that says it's a seed faith. Everything you give is just, it's just planting seeds so that you can reap a financial whirlwind. And they take particularly these passages and they build upon them and then try to get you to send them your money in the hopes that somehow that would be a better investment than the stock market. And they are abusing God's word. And it doesn't work. And they don't even believe it. Right out of college, I managed a Christian radio station, and I finally got sick and tired of some of these people that were on the air, and so I wrote them a letter and told them that our station would be willing to take their money. I did the same thing when I was planting a church. Sent a letter off to a guy that uh, was one of these prosperity guys and said, you know what? Our church is being planted, and we are in need of, uh, of funds as well, and God seems to be at work in this, and so, you know what? I'd like for you to be blessed for a time change. So send us your $10,000, and see if God doesn't multiply it tenfold so that you can get 100000 for your ministry, maybe even a million for your ministry, because those are the principles in which you're declaring that if people will give you the money, then somehow they're guaranteed to receive 10 or 100-fold in their investment. So, you know, as an expression of Christian love, I'll bless you, send us your money, and we'll hope that you prosper as well. Anyone want to guess how much money I got? They don't believe it. It's garbage, it is a lie, and it comes straight from hell, and it is leading people to hell. And these principles become abused so that even Christians who are seeking God's face, they're afraid to deal with these things. But Paul puts them here very clearly, and there are great promises, and we need to consider what God's promises are. In verse 10, he says he will increase our righteousness. Now, if righteousness, as I've defined it before, is right action propelled by right faith. In other words, the gospel that doesn't move within us to enable us to act. What a wonderful demonstration of it when we, as Paul is pointing us to say to the gospel, and remember how much grace we've been given, and that grace that has been given to us compels us to give grace to others through a tangible expression of a commodity. Each time we are compelled by the gospel to give faithfully to God or abundantly to missions over and above, that is righteousness, and it begins to grow in us. It's not a magical thing. It's just a s simple aspect of the promise of the gospel. And so it's an opportunity for renewal, for righteousness to grow as we remember the grace given to us that we want to pass that on in a tangible way. And then in verse 11, we're told that he'll make us rich in every way. which then leads, should lead us to the question of, well, how many ways are there to be rich? Because we tend to only measure one, don't we? You'll be rich in every way, and then we want to look at our bank books. But apparently, Paul has in mind a number of ways of being rich. While people who are abusing these passages will tell you the seed faith, okay, if you give your money, then you'll get that much more back. And sometimes that's true. My father-in-law, when he was the administrator and the missions pastor of a very large church in Knoxville, and he would lead a portion of the new members class. And he had a wonderfully insightful way of dealing with the stewardship issue as the administrator of the church when in the new members class. He went in and he would explain to everybody that it was expected that people would participate, contribute, 
and even encourage the tithe. And citing these verses, he would say, for some of you, that will mean that as you give, the more you give, the more you will have in your bank accounts. And for others of you, the more you give, well, the less you'll have in your bank accounts. But God's promise is not just dealing with the bank account, it's dealing with richness in a number of ways. And think about it, we already do that with money, don't we? Why do we buy security systems for our houses? Well, to give us a sense of peace, security. We can be rich in peace as we trust in God who provides. There's a sense of joy. All of the things that we are already spending money on are things that we want to be enriched in. And God is at work as we are faithful giving to him to enrich us in every way. My hope for us is a people who become highly generous. Looking at the indicators of our church, many of you already are, maybe most of you. My purpose, again, is that we would take seriously what God says, that we would be a people that can grow in his grace and be renewed by God continually by embracing the practices he calls us to engage in. We take him seriously at his word. In terms of the church budget, that becomes a byproduct. It shouldn't be the focus, not of the congregation, not of the deacons or finance committee who is primarily responsible for making sure that we are responsible for what we have been given. It's not that it's unimportant, but it cannot, it should not be the focus. God's people growing in God's grace, expressing it and receiving his promises, that's our desire. Let me close. Our Father, as we we come and deal with this, in some ways difficult subject, I pray that you would speak to us the hearts that are already abundantly generous, we give thanks and pray that you would continue to be at work and give them the joy of their faithfulness. For those who hear this and would like to be able to give and do more, but are somehow, in some ways, restricted, we pray that you would grant them grace and wisdom to be set free. For those who have never thought about it, Lord, may your spirit enlighten them. And for those who have simply not been faithful, Lord, help us to recognize that these passages simply call us to the reality of the condition for all of us that we are are broken and tend to be self-reliant. That we might turn to you not only repent, but believe not only in the forgiveness of our sins, but the goodness of our God, who has not spared anything, who has given Christ, not only that we would live, but that we would live abundantly. Bless us, I pray, 